Actually, on the original Enterprise, there are some saucer rim windows right under the engine domes. So they've got to have that thing flashing and spinning right in their <laughs> eyes the whole time. <laughs> That's where Bones' cabin is. That's why he's always grumpy. <laughs> I don't get any sleep, Jim. The damn engine's glowing and turning and glowing and turning. <laughs> I'm Mark Farinas, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. We're back, baby! This week, we rejoin the Lower Deckers for a double header, but we know it's all about Moopsie. Moopsie! Then... Science fiction author Jennifer Lee Rossman beams up to discuss Voyager's Charlie problem called Tuvex. Then all three of us get spliced by the transporter to tell you what we're fanning over. Lower Decks returns for a fourth season with a tribute to Star Trek Voyager called Two, as in the number two, Vix. The crew of the Cerritos are tasked with getting the USS Voyager home again. This time as a museum ship, but Voyager holds old secrets that complicate what would have been a simple cruise. Voyager's problems also affect the Cerritos, causing the crew to merge in Tuvix-like fashion. This is the first time that we're talking about Lower Decks. I'm really excited because, oddly enough, it's the streaming Trek show that I've always connected with the most. It's the one that unironically embraces what Star Trek is instead of trying to deconstruct it. I mean, yeah, they they call out tropes and cliches that bog down the franchise, but they also take the crew out into the unknown to grow their knowledge and understanding. They don't wallow around in known space waiting for Earth to be threatened or the Federation to bite itself in the ass, which is, you know, what almost all Star Trek has been for about the last 15 years. Yeah, they are less constrained to the Alpha Quadrant than, say, Strange New Worlds, which ironically has Strange New Worlds in the title. But we rarely get to see Strange New Worlds other than worlds we've already seen before. Yeah, they went back to Earth, what, twice? In this season alone. But the first season, it seemed like they were going to Earth every other day. Yeah. You know, this for me was sort of like the Strange New Worlds season to opener was it's it's okay i think it would have been better in the middle of the season it just didn't feel like a we're back opener of an episode yeah and felt very first season lower decks for me yeah but um i agree with you uh this year's premiere left me a little cold lower decks least interesting episodes are the ones where references can completely stand in for the jokes and that's pretty much what today was right yeah uh, it was all very self-referential it was basically a highlight of all seven seasons of voyager into one episode that was just one ongoing joke yeah we were talking about this the other day that the kid and i watched the first season of lower decks together after she'd come home from school we used to call it buffer time <laughs> Which is an episode of Lower Decks I love. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, that dried up completely in the second season, mostly because of episodes like uh, 
what was it, Keishan, his eyes open, that replaced even plot with references. And uh, it was too much for her to understand, not having seen much Star Trek wow. to begin with. Uh, uh, to me, Lower Decks is, is best when it's mostly its own thing and just slips some callbacks in that aren't essential to the story. Right. I also prefer when Lower Decks has the referential stuff as sort of adjacent or as a sprinkle of flavor in the episode. And it focuses more on the relationships between the characters. I think that's where Lower Decks is strongest, is in all of its characterizations and how they pair those characters off for different adventures. Yeah, yeah. I didn't watch all of Voyager, but I did see enough of it uh, to get most of the references. You know, the Lenny and Squiggy guy as a murder clown and the Warp 10 lizards. I, I got that. But I don't have any idea who the sexy Irish guy was. Can you fill me in on that? Yes. Okay, so Voyager had this weird thing where they wanted to give Janeway a romance, but they knew they couldn't give her a romance on the ship. So she started using the holodeck in a Will Riker sort of way. <laughs> oh, no. To satisfy or satiate those needs. And so... Voyager had this holiday program called Fairhaven because, you know, Star Trek loves a period drama. I don't know. Uh, but they had this Irish town called Fairhaven that was 1800s-ish or early 1900s. I can't remember off the top of my head. Which which sounds right for Janeway because she's already got the what I call the evil stepmother haircut. <laughs> She, she is a walking Bronte sisters character, right? Yeah. But there is this barkeep, Michael, that she kind of kind of gets into a relationship with. But he has a wife and she basically reprograms the holodeck to delete the wife. There's that line <laughs> where she says, computer, delete the wife, which is why <laughs> it's so funny to me, having watched that episode, when Mariner is, computer, delete this guy. <laughs> <laughs> nice uh maybe i'll check that one out sounds horny as horny as burnham era star trek can get <laughs> it, it's it's still pinned up and buttoned up sexuality <laughs> mm. so this premiere uh introduced to lynn a mildly disgraced Vulcan scientist that I believe was in the Vulcans are too logical to function episode of season two. She was in the one where they went through all the lower decks of the various different races, like the Klingons. And yeah. And the Vulcans are like, we're in space exploring, but we're not curious about anything. Yeah. Which is so <laughs> odd, right? It's like, yeah. wait, you're scientist. Shouldn't you give a shit about stuff that's happening in space? I, yeah. I don't know, but I love to let. She's my favorite new character. I love how she's just absorbed by the Lower Deckers and assimilated as, as just one of them. And I'm glad she's a full-timer. I just love her energy. I love her delivery. She's Vulcan, but yet she makes these like observations that are jokes that make me laugh. And she's voiced by someone on a show you love, Gabrielle Ruiz from My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah, it's hard hearing her voice and not imagining her belting out, I'm so good at yoga. 
maybe that's coming up later in the season. This is a great reason to have a Lower Decks musical episode. If you have Gabriel Ruiz yes. guest starring on. I love the character as well. She is a cartoon of what Vulcans should be, but, you know, this is a cartoon. So it's <laughs> forgiven. Unlike, say, uh, Spock and Tupring in Strange New Worlds. But you know what? She's also an agent of chaos. And you can tell that she enjoys it. Because even in animated form, it's hard to miss the sly smile and eyebrow cock that she does when she beams all the two Vixes into one Tetsuo blob. Yes. <laughs> She's obviously having fun. <laughs> yeah, she was proud of that mess. <laughs> More Vulcans should be agents of chaos. I don't know what to think of this mystery entity that's destroying various ships at the opening closing shots of this season. But I do think that if you're going to do an arc in Star Trek, this is the way to do it. Just hint at it a bit without making it important to the plot and then solve it in the last episode. That way, if it's a letdown, it doesn't matter. It's just one episode out of 10. Yeah, it's not like a 10-hour movie that way. And you still get the episodic nature of Star Trek, which Star Trek works best in. Yeah. And it's just inherent into the concept, too, because you're on a ship that's going from place to place as their job. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know what to think about it either. In fact, I keep having to be reminded about it. I don't know if that's good or bad, but someone asked the other day, like, does anyone remember the, the Romulan ship? we'll talk about this episode soon, but does anyone remember the Romulan ship at the beginning of the episode? And I go, no, I totally forgot about it because I got so involved in the story of the episode that I just completely blanked out. Yeah. And did not remember that there was this mystery ship out there. I think it's a good thing. I think it's like, this is a format that Doctor Who has been doing since 2005. This thing is their bad wolf. Yeah. I don't have to remember that it happened. They'll bring it up when they need to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's fine. I rather enjoyed how Lower Decks has handled the arc serial storytelling for its particular show. It's sort of there in the background, but it's not beating you over the head that, hey, we've got to go fight the board, the changelings, the whatever big threat is of the season. Once again, this episode furthers my theory that everyone in Starfleet of this era are Trekkies. Even the curator, Lijo Tweakle, kind of sounds like Bojo Trimble. Oh, that's kind of similar to the fan who saved Star Trek in the 60s. Uh, yes. But they're less curator and more like a collector. Like he's like, that's a mission worn uniform. You know, I mean, <laughs> these people are Trekkies in the 24th century. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could say they're just history buffs, but they yeah. are definitely Trekkies. Uh, definitely, definitely. Now, the biggest Voyager reference here is the infamous episode Tuvix, where the characters Neelix and Tuvok are accidentally merged into one person. You might have heard of it. We're being particularly vague about it because we're going to discuss that aspect of the episode in a later segment. Our second Lower Decks episode of the day is I Have No Bones, Yet I Must Flee. The Lower Deckers all get promoted while on their way to rescue some humans trapped in an intergalactic zoo. Boimler suffers through one bad room assignment after another, and Mariner deals with the stress of finally becoming a lieutenant while attempting to survive her most horrifying alien encounter yet, the whoopsie. 
this was a much better episode and i almost feel like it could have been a better season opener exactly <laughs> yeah i think dropping us in media res with them already promoted would have been fine i told you this before i actually accidentally saw this episode before Tuvix because I didn't know that there were two episodes released that day and I wasn't confused <laughs> at all it's so, like when uh, Jordy LaForge became the chief engineer in Next Generation season two I, I didn't need to see him get his pips no I didn't I didn't need to see him get the gold uniform either yeah uh, I agree with you this was a much stronger episode than the opener and like I said it, it's it, it's kind of like Strange New Worlds this past season like the broken circle was sort of, uh, it's okay. But Odd Austria was the episode you're like, this is the episode that should open the season. <laughs> yeah, because it freaking wrapped up what they did in the cliffhanger of the previous <laughs> yes. season. Yeah. But not only that, but it was a much more dramatic episode. But, you know, there, there, there could have always been production reasons for why that happened. It could have been like why the man trap aired first and not the Corbonite maneuver. Yeah. But what I love about this episode is, is that it's a humorous twist on the old menagerie sci-fi trope that you see in like countless stories. Twilight Zone's at least done it two or three times. Star Trek's first pilot and its two-parter. Superman the Animated Series. Superman the Animated Series. But what I like here is, is that Naj's menagerie is just this roadside exhibition. It's uh -huh. It's the Tiger King. Yeah. Naj is the Tiger King, collecting all the most dangerous things and putting them in cages and saying, come pay me and look at these things. It's just such a great humorous commentary on all these wannabe zoologist grifters who exist and who got popular because of the Tiger King docuseries. Jesus, when you put it that way, Narj got exactly what was coming to him. Exactly. Exactly. I kind of felt bad for the guy, but now, no. No, no. I didn't feel bad at him, for him at all because he's like, and my most popular exhibit is the Gobblers. And then he sees the Moopsie and he's like, everything in this menagerie is dangerous. And you're like, okay, yeah, he's the Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and of, of course, Moopsie. Moopsie. Moopsie is my newest obsession. I cannot get enough Moopsie. Moopsie. I love Moopsie. Moopsie. Why aren't there any talking plush toys yet? Come on, Star Trek merchandising. Come on, Van Sitters. Where is this stuff? This and Murph would do gangbusters. Moopsie. Yeah, um, this is the kind of thing where they drop the ball because it, it should have been designed before the show even came out and ready to buy yeah. as soon as the, the episode aired. I told you in the previous segment that the kid used to be a Lower Decks fan, so I, I showed her Moopsie. Moopsie! And you know what she said? No, what did she say? <laughs> they ripped off the bunny from Monty Python. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but it's so much cuter! Moopsie! Yes, yeah. Because, <laughs> okay, so I love that moment <laughs> where, like, Meredith's like, Oh, your cuddliest prisoner has escaped. Whatever shall we do? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, yeah I, lo I love Moopsie. I can't get enough Moopsie. Moopsie. Yeah, you know, sometimes you can take an idea and push it further, and I think they did that here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Moopsie is totally derivative, but yeah, it stands on its own. It, it does stand on its own. 
And I like it better as a threat than I do the Gorn. So. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I'd rather see them trying to deal with the Moopsie than that, because it's just like, yes, it's so cute. Moopsie's smarter than the Gorn. <laughs> Moopsie. Yeah, I have a feeling Moopsie knew what it was doing when it programmed the uh, orbit to start to decay. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the Moopsie was pushing random buttons. Moopsie's got a death wish. Moopsie. Like the previous episode, this one is riddled with references to classic Trek. We've got Ransom and Shax doing stretches in <laughs> Troy and Crusher's leotards, which is just peak lower decks. But it works so much. It works so much. <laughs> yeah, I was dead and then I was alive again. Um, and then you've got the the humans in the menagerie. They've got uh, what you mentioned was the unnatural selection clothes on. Yes. I just recognize them as generic TNG civilian clothes, but you nailed it. They're definitely from unnatural selection. Yeah, I was like, are these the teenage kids who look like adults whose immune system can kill regular humans? Yeah. I mean, everything in the menagerie is dangerous. And you know what? I think one of the visiting families was the Edo from Justice. Yes, yes, yes. The little orange aliens. Yes. No, 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 no. No, no, there was an orange alien. I thought that was the one from Pen Pals. That's what I was thinking yeah. that was. Yeah. yeah, no, but they had the William Ware Tice barely their clothes on. <laughs> the husband didn't have any moose knuckle, though. <laughs> no Decker unit. Yeah. So <laughs> there was a wealth of stuff, but, you know, it was all incidental. If there was an Enterprise reference somewhere in there, too, I, I wouldn't know, and it wouldn't matter. You don't need to be in the know to get what's going on. And those, to me, are the perfect kinds of callbacks. So the, the one in-joke that I love is I've always wondered which officers got screwed with the windows next to the warp nacelle on the Enterprise D. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, that's got to be annoying, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love that Boims has to deal with it. <laughs> throughout the episode and then and then rutherford's all like oh let's just dim the windows <laughs> here's a chance for a reference they didn't have they should have had mr marbles scattering across the floor when boimler was in that red room oh yeah <laughs> it's not star trek but it's something <laughs> well oh well there's another there's another reference which is possibly my favorite reference in all of it and it's in the title I have no bones, yet I must flee. Is just another take on Harlan Ellison's short story. I have no mouth and I must scream. Except this is a little lighthearted. Ellison's story is about a torturous AI who's kept a group of humans alive just to torture in various disturbing ways. And it ends with one human turned into a blob of flesh with no mouth, who the AI still torments, but he can't scream because he no longer has a mouth. Hence the title of the story. Da, 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 da. <laughs> it's a good thing Ellison isn't alive anymore. He might have sued. <laughs> Probably would have, yeah. Like, Damn it, they, they, they ruined City, and now they've taken a title of another story. Then he would have told the story about how he tied some woman up for her father to find later. Oh, yeah. I love Harlan Ellison. I have, like, a lot of his books. But, yeah, I remember that particular essay. <laughs> Har Harlan Ellison is the, is the David Brooks of literature. <laughs> that didn't happen, Harlan. You're disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And anyway, 
Also, once again, Starfleet officers are Trekkies because what does Boims have? He has like those XO6 museum grade Star Trek figures that I have. Oh my God. That's true. He also has a Stargazer model <laughs> in his box. The original one, not the one for Picard. <laughs> so on a serious note, it's really nice to see Mariner's fear of success possibly coming to a head here after four yes. seasons of her shying away from responsibility. She's got a problem that I personally can relate to. It's not a fear of success. It's a fear of failure. Yeah. You know, she's trying to avoid stress and responsibility, but the reality is being left behind over and over again is just super stressful. Yeah. I made this mistake a few times myself. Like in high school, I didn't do assignments because failing for not trying was way better to me and my underdeveloped brain than finding out my work sucked and having somebody tell me so. And, you know, it probably wouldn't have, but I didn't realize that. Right. I thought not trying, not doing work was less stressful. But the real stress comes when people are passing you by and you're scrambling to catch up and save face, which Mariner would ultimately have to do. I don't want to be a 25-year-old senior. She shouldn't want to be a 40-year-old ensign. Right. You know, I just wish that I had had a teacher like Ransom growing up. I think the world needs more Ransoms. Yeah, and you touched on something here that I, and I even said in the last episode, what Lower Decks does really well are character relationships. Yeah. And I really like the Mariner-Ransom relationship. There's a ship going on with those two, but I prefer him growing into her mentor and the one XO who believes in her. Uh, and I think this episode reveals a lot more about both characters Ransom isn't the meathead idiot that everyone perceives him to be at times, just the guy who's lifting weights constantly. Uh, and he's someone that believes in helping officers become who they are capable of becoming. You know, he's not an egotistical meathead as you think he might be in the, in the earlier seasons. And I also think Mariner just needed someone to believe in her. You know, which I think we've known all along. Deep down, she doesn't believe in herself, despite her cocky attitude. Her cocky attitude masks her insecurity. Yeah. And she just needs someone to tell her, no, I see potential in you. I'm going to push you a little bit. Yeah, somebody who's not her mom. Yes, and I think that's also the other problem is, is that she has these two alpha-type Starfleet parents her uh, tiger parents, <laughs> so to speak, you know, hovering over her and telling her, no, you need to be a captain by now. Last thing that I want to say is my one disappointment was with to Anna and Shax's sex. It was just murder LARPing. There was nothing really sexual about it. I was expecting something kinky and wild and, and they didn't deliver at all. It's on par for someone who's a cat. Like, I'm waiting for the episode where she just delivers a dead bird to Shax. <laughs> <laughs> I love Tiana. It's like Pulaski got two victors from Ress. That's true. <laughs> the one last thing I will say is I hope we see more of Ensign Gary because I think he's going to turn into Lower Deck's version 
of Sam Kirk, which in turn is Strange New World's version of Hudson from Aliens. (laughs) Game over, man! As we mentioned in the Lower Decks Tuvix discussion, we felt Tuvix needed its very own discussion. After all, I think it may be the most divisive topic in Star Trek lore. It's a topic so loaded that we didn't think two jerks alone could handle it properly, so we invited another jerk to help us, science fiction and fantasy author Jennifer Lee Rossman. Welcome aboard the ship full of jerks. Oh, thank you. Would you like to tell us a little about yourself? So I am a science fiction, fantasy author and editor. I am in upstate New York. I'm autistic and queer, and I use a wheelchair. And I've gotten very into Star Trek over the last year or so. And I think I've watched every episode in the past year. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I have nothing to do most of the day. And this became my new special interest. And now how people are following me on Twitter to watch me watch shows. And it's strange and I like it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've been seeing your Farscape and Stargate rewatches or or first watches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I have mm-hmm. seen your your Voyager watch throughs. So is this the first time you were watching Voyager when you were doing those? So I watched a lot of Voyager as a teenager, but it was kind of in the background and I was not medicated for my attention deficit disorder yet. So I knew characters, but I did not pay attention, and most of the plot points were new to me. So let's get right to it. Tuvix, you know, where do we start with that? He originated in an episode of Voyager's second season. A flower got caught in the transporter beam and fused Neelix and Tuvok together into a single entity who names himself Tuvix. Over the course of the episode, Tuvix tries to ingratiate himself with the crew and the audience, but ultimately, Captain Janeway wants her two friends back and drags Tuvix kicking and screaming to his death as he's pulled apart into his component personalities. So the question is, was this murder, as many fans insist, or was this Janeway righting a wrong and giving a life back to two people who didn't deserve to die in the first place? So at first, Tuvix is something that has gone wrong, something to be dealt with to return to the familiar and comfortable. He's something that has happened to our loved ones, but he quickly establishes that he is a unique person. He has value on this crew. He is an individual. So to me, this episode could be metaphorically almost an abortion debate. Mm. (laughs) And Tuvix even refers to Neelix and Tuvok as his parents at one point. That's true. So rights of the parents who did not ask for this to happen matter more than the life of someone who should not have existed. And it kind of flips that debate on its head where we can hear what the quote unquote child is saying, but we can't hear what the parents want. Someone else has advocated for the parents and that's Janeway. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at it as a metaphor in that case, Janeway did the right thing because the rights of 
the parents should matter more than the rights of someone who does not exist yet or barely exists. Mm. Right, right. That being said, in a real world situation, that is absolutely murder. Tuvok and Neelix already were dead and yeah. have yeah. individuals who wants to exist who can say that he wants to exist. And that is disregarded by one person who has decided that she can make that choice. Hmm. That's interesting because that does sort of flip the script when you look at it as a metaphor for the abortion debate. And I didn't think of it until you just said it because I always thought about it in the reverse, right? This is a, this is a life form. Right. You know, this is new life that we've found. And now Janeway, you know, seems to just arbitrarily want to kill it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as soon as it arrives yeah i guess there is that that that's that sort of debate I, I you know in that and that's very interesting i really i really like that perspective something i would not have thought of yeah tuvix is actually uh kind of okay with dying at first he's like oh yeah sure you're gonna split me back up again that's fine it's it's like <laughs> it takes a while over the course of weeks for him to go oh wait i'm a person <laughs> Like he doesn't even acknowledge himself as a person at first. But but I think it's also interesting. He didn't ask to be born, right? There's also yeah. that aspect which which you touch upon, Jennifer. It's like he didn't ask to be born, but yet here he is. Mm, yeah. So also I noticed when I was rewatching Tubix yesterday, Janeway sees him as a metaphor for being stuck in the Delta Quadrant. Can we accept that we will never see our loved ones again? Or can we do anything we can, no matter how ethically dubious, to get them back? And that decision and that mindset kind of sets the tone for the rest of the show. Where even in the series finale, uh, they get back to it. They're fine. But Seven dies along the way. Chakotay dies. Tuvok is suffering from the effects of basically Vulcan dementia. She lost three people. So she travels through time, she changes history, she defeats the Borg just to get them back. Because she will do anything it takes to get the loved ones back, just like she did with Tubix. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, you know, I did notice that scene uh, when I just rewatched it too yesterday to prepare for this episode. And I did notice that scene and I thought, I kept thinking like, okay, this episode is about acceptance. But I'm not quite sure the episode gets there fully in terms of that exploration but i do think it it is interesting and you're flipping the script for me because you know clearly i was like this is janeway character assassination episode i don't know what the writers were thinking i love janeway this is not the janeway i've been sold but then now that you put it in that mindset and tie it to endgame this very much is the janeway that we are starting to be presented with after this season the Janeway mm -hmm. who will go to great lengths to save everyone in the crew. Wow. Yeah, you've just flipped the script twice on me, <laughs> which is great. You guys are making me almost wish I watched this show past season four. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my, my feeling with Tuvok and Neelix is very similar to your second line of analysis, Jennifer. It, you know, they're essentially dead. Space is dangerous. And the two of them knew that going in and you know they they died fair and square right it's it's a mission there's risks and you know they flipped a coin and they lost 
you know, Janeway says this, they can't advocate for themselves anymore because they're not there. So to me, they don't matter. They can't say that they want to live. And their wills certainly don't say, you know, in case of fusion, kill Tuvix or something like that. So we have no idea what they're thinking. And Janeway, as an advocate, can only guess what they want. And that's clouded by her own desires, right? Yeah. So we've got Tuvix. He's alive. He's got some remnant of Tuvok and Neelix in him. And he's clearly saying, I want to live. And to me, that takes precedence. It, it also doesn't hurt that Tuvix is played by a really charismatic actor who's allowed to actually act, unlike everybody else on the, on the series, who, you know, <laughs> as we know, have been commanded to be more robotic by the higher-ups and their delivery. And, uh, you know, Neelix is a fucking imbecile. Who would want him back? <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good argument. It's like, I, I kept watching it, and I'm like, Kes, you're leveling up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Because uh, there is that scene where Janeway lectures... Tuvix about how Tuvix would give his life to save anyone, trying to convince him to willingly do this, and that Neelix would do the same. So therefore, Tuvix must sacrifice himself for Tuvok and Neelix. I don't know what 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 are your thoughts on that scene, Jennifer? Because I think like it's Janeway telling Tuvix how to feel, but then Tuvok already sacrificed his life for Tuvix. It's very complicated. Yeah, like I get the point she's trying to make, but I think her point is actually disproving itself. Like, well, you're telling me that the people I'm made of would sacrifice themselves. So why not let them sacrifice themselves to continue letting me live? Yeah. And I think Janeway just does not like when things don't go her way. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) 100% that is part of her character. For sure. Oh, I think that she would say whatever she felt she needed to say to get her point across and the other person agree because she decided we're getting home, we're going to do whatever it takes, and we're getting them back first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that does very much play into how she evolved as a character on Voyager. And just like in Endgame, when the doctor refused to separate them, she said, well, I'll do it myself. She's like, she traveled to do it herself yeah yeah and, and i think that's that's interesting i i kind of i do want to touch upon that that scene now that we brought it up because i always felt like the scene where tuvix is begging for his life is both gut-wrenching and maddening because everyone else is emotionally bereft in that scene as they are in the entire series yes you know i, I can see janeway being the way she is because she's playing executioner here right but the rest of the crew just seems so dispassionate about anything I think the great bird, the doctor, stands up for Tuvix. But I think like what is the most frustrating part for myself is, is that it's so dramatically inert because we know this is the decision Janeway has to make to reset the show. But also we don't get enough of seeing the repercussions of this decision on Janeway. Like I'm sure this probably screwed her life a little bit, right? And she just walks in the hallway and then the episode ends and you're like, wait, I don't know how she feels. Well, she does, she does grimace a little bit. 
Yeah, but I mean that does it, it just it, it it's not like we had like a scene at the end of the old Star Trek where they're like, you know, Kirk's assessing how he actually feels about what's happened. So I don't know what do you think of the whole sequence of events from uh, the bridge to to the final executioner's uh, uh, hypo spray. <laughs> I mean, I think the episode really should have been a two parter. Yes, and then <laughs> like most of the episode happened in the first episode and then the cliffhanger is hey i can fix this but we have to kill two vicks yeah yeah no that's great i love it then there would be more debate about it they could actually have it not be her decision but have like star trek law and order about it yes yeah that would have been great no i love that idea because that's that's the part about this episode that gets me and i think why i get so mad about Janeway character assassination and she just straight up murdered Tuvix is because the episode doesn't focus on her wrestling with the decision. It spends more time with Kess and Tuvix than it does Janeway having complicated emotions about the decision she has to make. Right. Because the second she hears that she can split him, she just goes, okay, let's do it. She doesn't really consider it. She never has time to consider it. Yeah. But I loved your two-parter suggestion. Too bad Voyager wasn't doing arc storylines yet. Right. Yeah, you could have kept Tuvix on for like five episodes or something, just as a regular, to see how he interacts and stuff like that. And then at the end of that, those five episodes, then you're like, oh, we. by the way, we found a way <laughs> to rip them apart. <laughs> and that's even more like, oh, wow. We've gotten to know this guy. I'm sure Tim Russ and Ethan Phillips would have appreciated five episodes off with pay. <laughs> so this was rather clear cut with the people in my family. I described this episode to my wife and I had my kid actually watch it with me this morning. And the results are no contest. Uh, Tuvix deserved to die. Uh, and my wife was very utilitarian about it. She was like, it's the trolley problem. Two lives are more important than one, period. And I couldn't convince her otherwise. And her retorts to me was basically, how many people would it take to die to make Tuvix worth splitting up? Is it 10? Is it 100? And, you know, I don't know. That's a tough thing to answer. Hmm. If we got to like 10 people in a Tuvix, not in a lower decks way, which we'll talk about later, but in like a conscious way, saying they don't want to die. I mean, is 10 people worth splitting him up over? I mean, at that point, it's not even the trolley problem, though, because they already got run over. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> oh right? Yeah, that's true, yeah. You're absolutely right. It's over. <laughs> My daughter was also, you know, killed Tuvix, but um, her reasoning was that Tuvok and Neelix had lived longer lives and yes they are two people and Tuvix is only one but you know what she also laughed when Tuvix was trying to escape the bridge at the end so she may be a psychopath <laughs> so let's let's get into lower decks it's clearly on team Tuvix uh they called it a murder several times and only Talin thinks splitting to Anna and Billups up is the right call. How do we feel about how the show handled the ethical dilemma? And 
is what they did with it worth having dredged this controversy up again? So for me, if you go back to the abortion metaphor, this adds a new element, which is, is a being only worth having rights if it's useful, if it can tell you that it wants rights. And that brings up like the disability conversation. Mm. People are a lot more willing to let people die or even say we should abort this fetus, even if they're usually pro-life, if the person is going to be disabled. So how healthy would the Tuvix blob of meat need to be before it becomes the same conversation as the original Tuvix? Hmm. Oh, interesting. That's that is such a <laughs> such a great observation. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, because my observation was they just undercut it by making it a blob of meat, so they made the decision just easier, right? But now I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, you're right. It is. Is it? And Star Trek in the past has been like, it's better to die than to be disabled. I mean, Pike's the perfect example of that, right? Like he thinks his life is going to be over because he's going to end up in a chair. Like for an episode that started out calling it murder, they sure did find a way to justify the same action. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they did. They did. They pretty much did. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, they, they got everybody on board with it. They were like, oh, yeah. Now it's time. Yeah. Get rid of it. I've got more about the Tuvix representing Janeway's um, mindset of we'll do anything to get home. Yeah. So in the Lower Decks episode, the rest of the crew is dealing with holographic representations of Janeway's biggest hits and misses. Michael delete the wife Sullivan, the macro virus, which she dealt with by creating a bunch of holographic people to attack. Although later episodes would call into question whether holographic people are capable of becoming sentient. The personification of fear, who Janeway personally defeated, because as we have established, she will do it herself. Chaotica, who was defeated when Janeway took on the role of a villain. And, of course, the Borg. And what is the solution? Neelix's cheese. It is Janeway's greatest hits. And it is. When I watched the episode, I was like, ah, oh, it's just a bunch of Voyager in jokes. But now I can see where, like, Mike McMahon is a genius because he kind of tied it all together to the Tuvix problem. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that changes my review of the episode now. <laughs> I don't think we can have a really honest and complete Tuvix conversation without acknowledging that a lot of trolls and misogynists, both online and the real world, have used the Tuvix was murdered argument as a kind of rallying cry to dismiss Janeway altogether. She's the first female hero in in a Star Trek show, and there's a clear desire to make her seem like a hysterical and incompetent leader. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Bernie Bros and Hillary and her emails, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, does this have any effect on how you approach the controversy? So looking at Janeway as the first female captain on the show, we would expect her to be the female, the matriarch, the mother who argues for the new life. And she doesn't care about that. So I think not only is she the first woman captain, so that's a reason to hate her, Look, she's not even acting like a female, like we want her to. Uh, she's mm. 
yeah. breaking the stereotypes and doing what she wants to do as a character, not as a female character. Yeah. Yeah, that is true because this is kind of, it's almost the same kind of thing that you get with Michael Burnham too. Um, they will look for any excuse to say like, she's not acting in the way that we think a female character should act. It gets down to that basics, but they say, but they'll dismiss it as, oh, no, 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 but we're not because, you know, we like the rest of Star Trek, but they're really being misogynistic pigs. It is very frustrating that uh, on my end to, to see these people just dismiss Janeway because of one episode that, you know, before we had our conversation, I always just said, you know, well, that's the writers dropping the ball and making us hate Janeway in one episode. <laughs> you know, it has nothing to do with the character herself. I always blamed the writers kind of dropped the ball. That's it. Right. Um, but I do, I, I, I do like your observation about she didn't act in the, the matronly way that we expect mm -hmm. that she maybe even takes up a maybe Kirk like stance here in the other direction. Like if he had to split bones and Spock up or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I clearly think that uh, Tuvix was murdered and, and my uh, family cannot convince me otherwise, but, I got to admit that when I see a man that I know nothing else about say Tuvix was murdered, I just consider that a red flag because I can't be sure if he's saying it because he has a rational kind of well-argued belief in the sanctity of Tuvix's life or uh, if he's just some schmuck dog whistling that he hates women. So, uh, you know, unless I'm in a conversation like this one where we're having... Uh, you know, a nuanced and re respectful conversation. I just don't engage in Tuvik's discussions. I, I, I consider it poisonous. Mm. Jennifer, would you like to stick around for our next segment? Yes. Every so often, we like to step away from being jerks and just tell you what we're uncritically fanning over. Jennifer, as our guest today, you go first. What are you fanning over lately? So I just got into Stargate for the first time and coming to that after Star Trek is kind of a big shift. It's Star Trek is technically military, but it's not about the military mm -hmm. where Stargate takes place in a military base and they just do things the military way. I'm directive yet or at all. Yes. Um, it's when I started watching Star Trek, I at least had a general idea of what I was getting into with Stargate. I'm just brand new to all of this. And it's so exciting to see everyone be excited along with me for, oh, you get to meet that person. Oh, that person doesn't have a name for five more seasons. Because <laughs> I referred to one character as live action Dilbert played by Matt Damon and 20,000 people in my replies. <laughs> I'm sorry, Walter. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen Stargate in a long time. I, I remember enjoying the show and the movie. I liked the movie when it first came out. And uh, I loved the show when it was airing. And then I know they had a couple of other spinoffs, which I haphazardly saw. But there's a lot of Stargate. It's like almost like rivals Star Trek of that era in terms of the amount of content that they produce. I, I've only seen the movie, but I remember the ads 
from the movie were, don't go watch Star Trek VI, just watch Stargate again. <laughs> so there was a rivalry from the very beginning. <laughs> Star Trek is one of the reasons I'm actually watching Stargate, because it was on my list for something to watch eventually. And then, so while I've been watching Voyager, my favorite character is the EMH, or as I call him, the emergency medical husband, because I'm in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> and so someone told me that Robert Picardo is in those at the end of Stargate, and that pushed it to the top of my list. <laughs> One thing that I really love about your episode run-throughs is that, yeah, they're funny, they're incisive, but they're also a little horny. And uh, that's a lot of fun. Star Trek is. And Farscape is even more. Definitely. And once you start noticing it, stop noticing it. <laughs> well, this week, I am fanning over the new show, The Other Black Girl. It's based on a 2021 novel by uh, Zakia Dolly Harris. It stars Sinclair Daniel as Nella. Uh, an editorial assistant, and the only a black employee at a major book publisher. That is until Ashley Murphy shows up as Hazel, the titular other black girl in the office. From the setup, you would expect to see a lot of office drama revolving around these women dealing with the tone-deaf white people surrounding them, as well as trying to figure out how to support each other while getting ahead with their white bosses. And there is that for sure. Nella, for instance, wants to desperately tell off this famous white author, played perfectly, by the way, by Kevin from The Office, because he has this extremely problematic black character in his latest novel, uh, but her bosses tell her to keep her mouth shut. Hazel downright shames Nella into confronting the guy, but won't back her up when she actually does it. What makes this show really stand out, though, is its mystery and horror elements, Nella is haunted by the specter of the publishing company's only black chief editor who disappeared in the 80s under mysterious circumstances. And she finds a note in her jacket pocket that says, leave the company now. And at, at some points, it seems like Hazel may be stalking Nella. So I'm a traditional one episode a day kind of TV watcher. So I've only seen half the show so far, but I'm hooked. And Ryan, maybe I can get you to watch it too, and we can discuss it in full on a later episode. Absolutely. Because I do have Hulu, <laughs> so I can watch it. Wonderful. <laughs> well, then I'll let you know how it turns out. The other black girl, as Ryan said, is streaming in its entirety on Hulu right now. So this week, Mark, I'm fanning over the Star Trek II the Wrath of Khan, the making of the classic film by ardent researchers, John and Marie Jose Tenudo. Uh, and you may be familiar with them. They've been on a lot of programs like Center Seat, where they talk about the history and making of various aspects of the Star Trek production. In fact, they also occasionally collaborate with our friends over at Fact Trek, uh, Maurice Molyneux and, and Michael Komet. This book is fantastic. It is a great coffee table sized book with plenty of behind the scenes pictures, including early sketches of what the fan favorite uniform, the Monster Maroons, would eventually become. It's 190 pages, glossy, brilliant collection of, of facts about 
the making of the film, including all the various iterations of the movie from the early versions with Khan and then the versions without Khan and versions where Spock dies early on in the movie and where he dies later in the movie. So it's got all that goodness and all that history on one of the most popular Star Trek films. My only gripe, though, is that it's not as thick as Titan's previous book to this, which was Jeff Bond's The Making of Star Trek The Motion Picture. I feel like knowing the Tenotos, they probably had tons and tons and tons of extra material uh, that didn't make it into the book. And hopefully maybe there will be another book follow up to this. that will have more of those things. But um, I highly recommend it. It's from Titan Books. You can find it on Amazon. It's about 50 bucks US. And it's just it's just a beautiful book. And I'm glad to have this as part of my Star Trek behind the scenes book collection. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming in and sharing your wonderful insights with us. I don't think that this conversation would have been as rich without you. Thank you for inviting me. This has been awesome. Do you have anything else you want to plug before you go? I'm the co-editor of Mighty, an anthology of disabled superheroes. It is coming out on October 10th from Renaissance Press. And it is 14 stories of superheroes who are disabled in multiple different ways, written by disabled authors, edited and published by disabled people. And we're really excited about it. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Check that out for sure. All right. Well, thanks again, Jennifer. We hope we can have you on again soon. Yeah, anytime. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all of her work at SockPuppet.us. And you can find me at TrekComic on Twitter. And I'm at Ryan T. Riddle on the app formerly known as Twitter. Did you hear something you agreed with or disagreed with or just want to merge us together, get to know us as a single being, then split us against our will into our distinct parts? You can be Janeway. I mean, you can find the podcast on Twitter, too, at Shipful of Jerks. You know what? I've seen the one with the clown. I don't remember what Janeway did in it. I remember it was all Harry Kim. Yeah, she tricked him. Yeah, and she did it herself, like going in and basically tricking fear into being afraid of her. Yeah, it's a very great ending. I love the fate of Black on Janeway there. It's like so like, I'm afraid. Good.